Welcome back to Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. I'm Nahani Rouse. And I'm Judith Rosenbaum. The Me Too movement has been gaining momentum for a year now, and it's had global impact. More and more women are speaking up publicly about sexual assault and harassment. They're refusing to be ignored, and they're proving that their stories can create change. But what does Me Too look like in the Jewish community? What are the obstacles we face in our community and in our institutions when it comes to speaking up about sexual misconduct? This time on Can We Talk, Me Too in the Jewish Community. We'll hear stories from archiving Me Too, the story collecting project created by the Jewish Women's Archive. We'll get Judith's take on how the Me Too movement is impacting the Jewish community. And later in the show, historian Karen McGinnity talks about being sexually harassed and assaulted by a prominent Jewish academic and what happened when she came forward. This is not the Shanhara. This is not gossiping or hurting someone's good name. This is about what's right and what's wrong. This is about what is helpful and what is hurtful. Nine months ago, the Jewish Women's Archive launched a project called Archiving Me Too. Judith, can you tell us about the project? Sure. So as soon as the Me Too movement started to unfold, we recognized that this was going to be a historically significant moment and that it needed to be documented in ways that were more permanent than social media. So we created the collection to provide a place for women and people of all genders to share their experiences with sexual assault and harassment, both within the Jewish community and beyond it. Um, There's a web form on the JWA site where people submit their Me Too stories in writing or audio and people who share their stories can be anonymous and can set the permissions and restrictions as to how their story can be used. Our goal is really to document the depth and the texture of gender abuse in our society and to preserve this moment in history. And what kinds of stories have you been collecting? So many different kinds. Um, The stories span more than 50 years, several generations, and they're from multiple countries. They range from daily indignities to violent rape. A lot of people have shared their stories anonymously, and most of them don't name perpetrators, um, which is we ask people not to name perpetrators because the goal of our collection is not to out offenders, but rather to create an archive of collective experience. So let's listen to some excerpts read here by members of the JWA staff. And just a note to listeners, some of these excerpts contain depictions of sexual assault. When I was 12, I was raped by an older boy at Jewish summer camp. He was my boyfriend, but he was 16 and had a good foot on me. We escaped one night to go kiss in the forest, but he had other plans. I didn't realize what had happened to me until it was over. This happened at a Jewish summer camp. It's happening in our institutions where our children should feel safe and joyful. We have to be more vigilant and teach young men what not to do. On January 13, 2017, the director of my campus, Hillel, sexually assaulted me. I spoke to the rabbi, and she just wanted to keep it quiet. I filled out a police report, but it went nowhere. I didn't get any results, and there could be more victims. It's a mistake to think you're safer in a Jewish environment. My temple youth group director invited his friend to a youth group event. The two of them, men in their early 30s, invited me and two of my friends to a hot tub with them. They had us sit on their laps. We were 12. I'm a cantor. In a previous congregation 10 years ago, 
The temple president's husband always creeped me out, but I was always nice and kept a smile on my face. He would always try to put his arm around me, even in front of my husband. One Arab Shabbat, this man was assigned to bima duty and sat next to me. During a moment when I was not at my lectern and was sitting next to him, he leaned over and whispered, I finally have you alone, all to myself. I said nothing and just laughed it off. During that week, I reported it to the rabbi who said, if you hadn't done this before, you wouldn't have been believed. I was floored. Why would I make this up? What would I have to gain? If this man had a history of being inappropriate with young women, why was he permitted to sit next to me? And why wasn't I warned about his behavior? These questions appear a lot in the Archiving Me Too collection. Why wasn't I warned? Why wasn't I believed? Why is a man's reputation more important than my safety? Some women have wondered if they've helped normalize sexual misconduct by not acknowledging that certain experiences counted as harassment or assault. And these questions just were posed again and again with a lot of pain and a lot of incredulity and a lot of anger. There are other projects currently underway in the Jewish community aimed at addressing sexual misconduct, and we'll talk about some of them later. What's different about the Archiving Me Too project? It's tempting, I think, when you're faced with painful accounts like those of the Me Too movement to want to turn immediately to solutions and policies. It's really hard to listen to Me Too stories and to take in their magnitude and their deep roots. But we really believe that these stories demand time and attention, and we want to make sure that they are recorded and that they're heard. We believe that there should be many different ways to share Me Too stories, and we believe that the act of storytelling itself can be a source of strength. Some people want to share their stories publicly and pursue justice through the legal system. Others don't want to relive trauma or face their abusers, and that's their right. So we've created a way for people to share their stories in whatever way they wish, and we think that's important because it allows people who might otherwise not speak up to share their stories, to add them to the historical record, and to be heard in a way that feels safe. But obviously, public testimony has played a really important role in this movement. That's true, and that's a good segue into Karen McGinnity's story. You and I spoke with her recently. Can you tell our listeners who she is? I can. Karen is the director of the Interfaith Families Jewish Engagement Graduate Program at Hebrew College, and she's the author of two books about the history of intermarriage. She joined us recently to share her own Me Too story and to talk about how that movement is affecting the Jewish community. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So let's, let's go back to 2011. You were reaching the end of a fellowship and were entering the academic job market. You were at a Jewish studies conference and went to dinner with a senior colleague who had offered to discuss career prospects with you. And this was Stephen Cohen. You told us that when you met with him, you expected to have a conversation about your career, basically that you expected to be taken seriously as a scholar. Can you describe what happened? Um, the dinner did not transpire as I had thought that it would. Um, during the course of the meal, uh, he reached across the table and took my hand in his and kind of held on to it and asked me a lot of probing personal questions. Uh, I was uh, greatly relieved when the dinner was over and uh, we walked many, many blocks back to the conference hotel, at which point he rode up in the elevator with me and got off the elevator with me and uh, mentioned uh, something about um, going back to my room, um, 
which I, um, you know, firmly um, said no and uh, good night, at which point he um, kind of wrapped his body around me and, and kissed me in a manner that would only be suitable for people who were consensually lovers, um, at which point I rushed back to my room. What happened next? What did, what, how did you react? Did you confront him? Did you? Well, I reacted initially by being uh, extremely uh, shaken and upset. It was a kind of betrayal that I hadn't experienced before um, from someone who worked in the Jewish communal world. Um, I had, like many women, had experiences with sexual harassment uh, and um, assaults uh, over the course of my lifetime, uh, but never from someone under a pretense of of professional guidance. Uh, I was kind of paralyzed in the sense that I didn't know what to do. Um, it, given our different power dynamics, yeah. uh, I did not think about confronting him. Um, and from that point on, whenever we crossed paths, which unfortunately we did because we were in the same social science circles, uh, I would keep him at more than arm's length, and um, it was extremely uncomfortable to be anywhere in the vicinity of him. Um, I would, you know, dart around a room to keep away or otherwise, you know, sit with someone that I felt more comfortable with. Were you afraid that your pushing him away could have consequences for your career? It wasn't so much that I was concerned that by rejecting his sexual overtures that I would face repercussions um, exactly, but more that, you know, it, it, it wouldn't open doors, <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was in a uh, position of power, and I think it was more about not saying anything um, that would expose him, you know, call him out for his behavior that um, I was afraid of doing. Um, that, you know, that, that there could be personal and professional consequences. Were you thinking about all of this when it was actually happening? Like, what was going through your mind at that time? When he reached across the table and took my hand... I remember thinking, <laughs> you know, what is he doing and why mm-hmm. is he doing that? I gingerly, you know, move, moved my hand out of his hand and back to my side of the table out of kind of a, you know, a concern. Like, I didn't want to upset him. Mm-hmm. In that context, I didn't want to hurt his ego. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I tried to um, steer the conversation 
back to professional topics and questions and um, networking and um, career building rather than my personal love life. I was not uh, interested in exchanging favors of any kind. Yeah. Okay, so this was all in 2011. Now, this past summer, June and July 2018, you wrote an op-ed about this experience in The Jewish Week, and your op-ed was quickly followed by an article in which you and several other women described similar experiences with Stephen Cohen. How did you get to the point where you decided you wanted to make the story public? There were a number of variables that contributed to my deciding to write that op-ed. As the Me Too movement went on, I began to realize that by staying silent, I was inadvertently complicit in protecting sexual predators. I mean, I knew from the Me Too movement that, that the issue was much bigger than my own story and then this one man. Mm. And I also had wondered, you know, why didn't I know what I wish I had? Um, because then I would not have had dinner with him uh, in the first place. And what about other women who wouldn't know? And the the thought of other women being in that position weighed very, very heavily on my shoulders, and I was compelled to write it. I had to do it. So how did it feel then to be part of stepping forward and actually naming Stephen Cohen as the perpetrator? I was scared and nervous. I mean, there were so many unknowns. Like what? How would he react? I had no idea. What would people think? Would people question what I said? Would they question my scholarship? What would happen next? Would anyone do anything to change the structure and the systems that allow that kind of behavior to go unchecked? And can you talk about what has happened in the past couple months since you came forward with the story? Sure. That's the the upside of the story. Uh, the response was immediate and overwhelmingly positive. I received incredible words of compassion and understanding and solidarity and gratitude. Were you surprised by that? I was. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I took a, a personal and a professional risk. It seemed like, you know, a, a dam had been broken and there was a, a, a flood of, um, of communication and of experiences um, that other people had had both with Stephen Cohen and with other individuals. So after you and other women came forward, Hebrew Union College, where Cohen was employed, opened a Title IX investigation, and he resigned. He has publicly admitted, or at least says he doesn't deny, some of the allegations against him. 
So let's bring Judith into the conversation here. Both of you have been involved in different forums that are trying to address sexual assault and harassment in the Jewish community. Can you talk about some of the particular challenges? Sure. So first of all, Karen, I just want to thank you for sharing your story. I know it's not easy to do and it doesn't necessarily get easier to do it again and again. Um, A few months ago, before Karen's piece and everything that has unfolded since then, I was really feeling some despair looking around the Jewish community and saying, really, is the Jewish community incapable of facing its perpetrators and bringing them down? So now, okay, we've made a little bit of progress, but there are a lot of other stories out there, some of which have yet to come to light. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting as a for me as a communal professional, is just to see how much resistance there still is to acknowledging that the problems of the whole world also exist in the Jewish community. It's almost like a joke, right? Like, oh, does that really happen here? And But we're Jews and it's we're so menschy and, you know, our communities are so Hamish and, you know, all these kinds of ways of basically not wanting to air dirty laundry or recognize that Jews are humans and therefore fallible Um just like anyone else, and that, in fact, there's a lot of, like, patriarchy baked into our culture. Mm -hmm. I think that was part of what fed into my initial hesitation to come forward. There's definitely a false sense of security, um, which we're slowly dismantling, and that needs to be dismantled in every realm of the Jewish community and in the larger American community. I recently had the opportunity to collaborate with women of other faith backgrounds and to hear their stories. And I think it's important, you know, for us to all come together and and realize that um, no community is immune. Yeah, it's part of also, I think, about from whose perspective are we seeing things? So even the claim that, well, this community is like a family and so it should feel safe and secure and all these things, like, well, that isn't what family always means to women, right? Like we know from research about violence against women that the family is actually the least safe place for women. So it maybe shouldn't be surprising that in a community that's designed to feel like a family, there are also dangers to women that come along with that. Exactly, and and unfortunately, um, women who did try to come forward before me to really experience the brunt of that because they were told Um, oh, he wouldn't do that, or you're going to ruin his career, he has a family. And I feel extremely fortunate that I didn't hear anything like that. Mm -hmm. I will say, um, as much as I don't um, like to revisit my own um, experiences, uh, I do feel stronger now than I did. And Uh, know that there are other people who are rocking the boat with me. And ultimately, it isn't just about helping women in the same way that feminism isn't just about helping women. It's about equality, and it's about working together, all of us, all genders, in order to make our communities, our lives, and the world better. So there is a lot of work to do and a lot of educating and re-educating, and I include myself in that because... I am a product of our society, and I know that contributed to my initial, you know, frozenness and hesitation and even growing up um, being taught, you know, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it. Mm -hmm. As somebody who spends my life 
collecting and immersing myself in the stories of women's lives, I also want to be very respectful of the fact that women have no it is their right to tell their story or not tell their story and no one has the responsibility to share something if she doesn't want to and I guess maybe a question for you Karen is as someone who has taken that risk of speaking up and and putting yourself out there in that way what can the Jewish community do to make that safer and easier for people well, I think the Jewish community has um, already begun doing that, which I'm very, very glad to see. Um, I think that we need to normalize it, uh, and we need to make a connection between coming forward, speaking out, pointing out bad behavior and abuses of power as being consistent with Jewish values and with Jewish tradition, and with Judaism, and not antithetical to them. Mm. This is not Lashon Hara. This is not gossiping or hurting someone's good name. This is about what's right and what's wrong. This is about what is helpful and what is hurtful. And we need to internalize that and reach people within the Jewish community for whom that is hardest. And ultimately, we need to put more women in positions of power and to try to understand what is it between the relationship between power and corruption, power and abuse of power, power and sexual harassment and assault because not everyone who has power acts in the ways that sexual predators do. And people do from all genders, right? So it's not that we need to put women in positions of power because women don't do bad things, but just because it will require a complete resetting of power structures if we upset the current gender imbalance and that will itself create change I mean Karen thank you so much for talking with us and sharing your story yeah we're really grateful to you thank you for including my voice so Judith any reflections on Karen's story what are some of the ripple effects? Well, I think one of the questions her story raises, and this is something that people in Jewish academic circles are thinking a lot about, is the relationship between Cohen's behavior and his scholarship. His work has had such an outsized influence on American Jewish life over the past, I don't know, several decades. Cohen was a well-funded sociologist of American Jewish life. He studied intermarriage, marriage, fertility rates, things that are very much connected to gender roles. And often his findings emphasize the importance of Jewish women marrying, producing Jewish babies, and raising Jewish children. So, you know, we might see that research in a different light given what we now know about his behavior towards women. Can you describe for us now some of the other initiatives in the Jewish community currently underway to confront sexual assault and harassment. Yeah, there are a lot of different projects that are doing great work, and JWA is really glad to be working with some of them. Um, 
The Gamani Facebook group has been a really important community for people to share things that are happening, share stories, um, talk about how to respond to things happening in the community. There's a new group called Bikavod um, that offers an info line and support for people who are considering reporting incidents in the Jewish community, also providing really important professional training. Um, there's an organization called Sacred Spaces that's actually been doing this work in the Jewish community for a while, uh, working with Jewish organizations to help create trainings and policies. There's a new group focusing on gender equity in hiring in the Jewish community, and um, the Women's Rabbinic Network is also doing training specifically with rabbinic and cantorial students, so a lot of good work happening. And all of these groups and individuals from them and others are part of a really important coalition, the Safety, Respect, and Equity Coalition that is convening people in the Jewish community who are working in these areas. And I'm really proud that JWA is part of the coalition and that we have recently received some funding from the coalition to support our Archiving Me Too project. Let's get back to the Archiving Me Too project with this story, which involves a woman's experience with the board chair of her institution. I'm an Orthodox Jewish woman and was the executive director of a newly formed JCRC. My board chair repeatedly would comment on my clothing, that I didn't dress like I was Orthodox, and my skirts were too short to be Orthodox. I reached out to the other executive committee members and was told I should be careful and to let this go. When I requested regularly scheduled meetings with the board chair, rather than him just showing up in my office, which he did, he told me, I spend as much time with you as your husband. At least he gets benefits. So this is coming from a man she's expected to act warmly toward. Yeah, the relationship between money, power, and its abuse is so stark here, and in a lot of these stories. This is an issue where there's still a lot of work to be done in the Jewish community. I think the Jewish community has proven that it's willing to hold a powerful academic accountable for his behavior, but I think it still really remains to be seen if we're willing to do the same with major funders of our institutions. Let's hear one last excerpt from the collection. It's from a woman reflecting on something that happened decades ago, when she was young. On a Friday night in Jerusalem, a young man asked if he could walk me home from synagogue. I was about 20 years old, and we both prayed in this well-known Orthodox shul. When we reached my apartment building, he began to walk upstairs with me to my apartment. I thought it was strange, but didn't object. At my door, I unlocked it, and suddenly he followed me in, then pinned me up against the wall and humped me until he came. Then he left. I have thought about this a great deal since then. He went on to finish law school and became a judge in Jerusalem. It sickened me to think he was now judging others. Judith, how do you take in all these stories and process them yourself? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not easy. This year has been really emotionally exhausting. You know, from the moment that the Me Too movement started, people started sharing their stories with me, I think, because of my role at JWA. And that's part of what motivated us to um, create the Archiving Me Too project. I check in with my staff who work with this material to make sure that they're doing okay. And, you know, but personally, I think because of the nature of the work that I do, I feel a really deep sense of responsibility to carry women's stories. And when those stories are dismissed or devalued, it hits me really, really hard, not just as a woman, but as a historian of women's lives. So, you know, to get back to the specific story we just heard, it's even more painful when we consider the ripple effects of having misogynists and abusers in positions of power. They're making policies that affect our lives. They create workplaces that exclude women or discourage our participation. 
they shape our culture in ways that are not always visible. And then we consume that culture and it influences how we see and understand the world. So it's really about much more than just holding a few people accountable. It's much larger than a few individual stories. And yet the Me Too movement is built on the power of those individual stories and what the sum of them tells us about our society. Yeah, the collection as a whole gives us a picture of just how pervasive this kind of behavior is. Many of the stories describe the everyday sexism women face and frankly learn to accommodate. A lot of women say it took them a while to figure out that what they'd experienced was not okay and actually, quote unquote, counted as a Me Too story. They had rationalized it for so long that it seemed normal. Yeah. I think another important takeaway is the, the healing potential of sharing your story. Several women have told us that this is the first time they're telling anyone what happened to them and that it was a relief to do so and to feel witnessed and affirmed. So I'm really glad that JWA can hold these stories and enable some healing. If you, our listeners, have a story you'd like to share as part of JWA's Archiving Me Too project, please visit jwa.org slash me too and add it to the historical record. You can submit stories anonymously, and you decide if and how you want JWA to share your story. Thank you for joining Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. A warm welcome to our new production assistant, Becky Long. Thanks to our readers, Dina Adelsky, Rachel King, Mickey Pugh, Larissa Klebe, Abby Bellier, and Becky Long. Special thanks to Karen McGinnity. Ibi Caputo edits our scripts. Our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. Visit us online at jwa.org slash canwetalk. You can also find Can We Talk just about anywhere you get your podcasts. We are looking for sponsors for Can We Talk. Please get in touch with us at podcasts at jwa.org. You can also help us produce more episodes by making a donation at jwa.org slash donate. Every little bit helps. Thanks for being with us. I'm Judith Rosenbaum. And I'm Nahani Rouse. See you again next month.